Well, that's it. I mean, we, we use the word authoritarian. Is that any different from somebody having authority? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we tend to think of authoritarian as being of a, that's the sort of authority you don't want or something. Yeah, other top, than, top down. Yes, right. Um, but, control. But, but can you get anything else from government? I mean, isn't it always top down control? In some sense, it's, it's Ottawa telling control or trying to tell the rest of the, the Canadian well, peons what, what to do. <laughs> Fringe minority holding unacceptable uh, views. I recently had a wise person tell me, if there's an elephant in the room and you can't hide it, then don't. My elephant is scripting. I can't hide the fact that this whole thing is so new to me that I often find myself reading scripts in order to keep my thoughts straight and prevent excessive tongue tying. I believe what we are doing is important and as I become more comfortable with the media, the elephant will eventually disappear. Thank you for your patience. It seems hard to believe, but I'm introducing episode five to you today. As with any worthwhile enterprise, we've had more than our fair share of bumps so far, and we're just getting started. Uh, this week I'm talking with so Dr. Graham Booker about his PhD in political philosophy, which proves um, to be a And then I did some work science. at Oasia. Uh, Dr. Booker is originally from Sydney, Australia. He has lived in Canada most of his life, and as mentioned earlier, holds a PhD in political philosophy. Retired from his profession as a high school teacher, he currently resides with his wife in Stratford. Our discussion includes, should government have any more authority than an individual? Dr. Booker's reaction to Winston Churchill's quote about democracy why a constitutional democracy is only as good as its constitution. What essential rules should the government execute? How and why politicians often follow the orders of bureaucrats rather than voters? Why Dr. Booker believes the COVID-19 pandemic was a hoax? The problems, dangers, and limitations of green energy as we currently utilize it. The difference between compulsion and compassion. How globalist elites are using altruism to inspire us into abject poverty. Dr. Booker explains why government is not the solution to the world's problems and how keeping it as small as possible is in the best interest of everyone but a small group of elitists. Please sit back and enjoy our fifth episode. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, Greg? Um, well, I had a long career. I, ma I made a living as a high school teacher a lot of the time, uh, but also did uh, graduate work on the side. At one point I took uh, time off to study at the University of Guelph, where I eventually did an MA in, in, in philosophy, and um, 
and then took more time off and went to Oxford on a scholarship for, for a year, but uh, there wasn't too much happening at that time uh, by way of employment for philosophers and that sort of thing, so I went back to my teaching job and stayed with it uh, for quite a few more years, started a bit of part-time. I, I thought, well, since I'd started some work at Oxford, maybe I should try and keep it up. So I started a bit of work at uh, Waterloo when I returned to Canada, and um, but it wasn't that well set up for part-time people, and so I abandoned that again, let it let it slide, went back to just kept on teaching. Um, and then I did some work at Noisy uh, at the uh, University of Toronto for a few years, working again in, in uh, philosophy education, I suppose, at that point. <clears throat> and then my, uh, I was supposed to be trying to do a doctorate there, and my supervisor left to go to the University of Calgary, and I used that as the excuse to let that slide, slide again. And then when I finally retired from teaching in 98, I uh, thought, well, I'd better get back and do something. So I went back to the University of Waterloo, worked there for 10 years, finished my PhD, and did some teaching and usual stuff. So, And then my supervisor had always been anxious after me to try and published my thesis and I finally got around to doing that a couple of years ago during COVID. <laughs> One thing that COVID allowed me to do was finally get my supervisor off my back and, um, and publish the book. So, so I did that. Now is that the book that you have? Um... Yeah, this is the uh, uh, the book here, but I won't, uh, and it's even colored purple, so there you are, look at no. that. Uh, and it's called Coercion, Authority and Democracy Towards an Apolitical Order. But I, I, I hesitate to wave it around because it's a, oh, uh, it's a, a horrendous price. I wouldn't suggest anybody spend that sort of money on it. it currently, it's been listing last time I saw it on Amazon for two hundred bucks or something or other. I think it's available in the in the states in paperback, um, and I think I saw it in Europe in paperback a couple of years back, um, not long after it had come out actually. But uh, the paperback is expensive too, so. So that's just the way it is with Palgrave and Macmillan, they're expensive publishers. Okay. Yeah. Don't you think Graham looks like a philosopher? He has the look. Like, I thought, boy, uh, this is like, he looks uh, like Socrates, uh, doesn't he? He has that, uh, 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 yeah. Uh, Greek, so, yeah, the Greek, Greek uh, uh, yeah, the thinker look. Mm. Uh, the goatee, yeah. and yeah, it's perfect. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Well, the, the title here, Coercion, Authority, and Democracy. Right. So, is that suggesting that democracy is an alternative to coercion and authority, <clears throat> or is... No, other uh, basically, I, basically, I think what I was arguing was, uh, I was trying to get clear on what the notion of coercion was in the first place. Was it automatically right or wrong, or, or could there be justified coercion? Uh, and, moreover, is the state a coercive body, because some people have said it isn't. You know, the state's primary task is not bad, but uh, I, I think that's <laughs> the essence of the state that it is coercive. Uh, and then the question is, well, where does it get its authority to be coercive from, or its authority to do anything from? Um, and then uh, finally, does democracy offer offer us some reason to believe it has that sort of authority? And if if so, how does democracy do that? And I think I conclude that democracy doesn't do that in the end. Doesn't do what? Doesn't. Doesn't. Doesn't provide the, the rationale. And, and uh, yeah, right. No, 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 no. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a, a progression. So so um, the, the the thing, if, if, if mm -hmm. I can, the thinking is is that um, we we live in a state of coercion. That's our, that's our, that's how state the state basically works. Mm -hmm. So why is the state coercive? Right. And, and, and where does it get its authority from? Yes. And how, do, and how does it become coercive? Does it follow the, follow the moral law or something or other? Because 
we'd say that yes, there is some reason to coerce somebody, somebody trying to kill somebody else. Well, uh, yes, well, why shouldn't you? Or, 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 or steal or from Prevent how or stealing or yeah. the, the, the basic moral principles that most of us would agree with. That, no, no for, for, force, fraud or coercion. Or um, self-defense. Yes, right. Or yeah. punishment. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Stopping people from doing bad things. Right, right. Yeah. I, I did. Deterrent, uh, yeah. Deterrent mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. from... So where does the state get its authority from? Um, does it have any more authority than, than all of us do mm -hmm. at the individual level is the question. And, and I, I say it doesn't. I mean, to the extent it has any authority, it has the authority you and I do to prevent harm to other people. Uh, when we can use coercion to, to prevent harm and uh, to the extent that the state has that, but it's often thought that the state's uh, ability to prevent harm is of a totally different sort just because it's on a, a, a huge scale or something rather than that, that scale makes all the difference or something. But, uh. the, the state <coughs> has the authority to use force, mm -hmm. whereas the individual does not. Right, well. right. And, but well, why don't they? Uh, is that a moral issue or is it just a, a legal issue? Mostly it's because the state said that that's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're in charge here we're, and you, you people do as you're told and so on. And, which, so, yeah. mm. which is not really, it, 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 in a, a balanced environment, it's, it's, it's something we can tolerate, but it's mm -hmm. not, not, not a great situation. But when, when it goes out of balance and it becomes more authoritarian, mm -hmm. then it becomes, the more authoritarian, the less and less tolerable mm -hmm. it becomes. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, we, we use the word authoritarian. Is that any different from somebody having authority? I mean, it, 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 we, we tend to think of authoritarian as being of a, that's the sort of authority you don't want or something. Yeah, other top, than, top down. Yes, right. Um, but, control. But, but can you get anything else from government? I mean, isn't it always top down control? In some sense, it's, it's Ottawa telling control or trying to tell the rest of the, the Canadian well, peons what, <laughs> what to do. Well, the way the original, like we were originally set up, it, it sort of, the, the, the Ottawa had its its area of influence. Mm -hmm. The provinces had their area mm -hmm. of influence, and then the municipalities were right, more top right, down right, control from right. the province. Mm -hmm. But the provinces were like separate entities mm -hmm. to the, the federal government, mm -hmm. and it it worked reasonably well. There's no such thing as perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to get your take on Winston Churchill's comment about democracy. Right, right. Um, democracy. Let me see if I get it right. Yeah. Um, the worst Demo form. De Democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's the best we got. Yes, or you know, compared to all the others, or something like that. It's a, yeah, yeah, um, yes. That's a, that's commonly said about uh, democracy. That the question is, do 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 we do we need all the others, or or whatever? I mean, um, is that a, is that a reasonable comparison? This, <laughs> you know, most of them are dreadful. It's just this is the least, the least dreadful. Do we even do we even have to tolerate that much? <laughs> it, it might be the question. You know, you did respond to Churchill over, uh, do you? Um, um, well, isn't there another one that would be better? It'd just be the Republic, wouldn't it? Where you got minimum, like most of this stuff shouldn't even be on the table to be voted mm -hmm. upon. Mm -hmm. uh, um, there's two systems that I like, um, that I, so far, that I'm <coughs> aware of. Um, the American system, which is a, a democratic republic. Mm -hmm. So basically what you're doing is you're electing managers to manage the Constitution mm -hmm. and, and, and manage how the country is going to run mm -hmm. under the uh, um, <clears throat> umbrella of mm -hmm. the Constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is Switzerland. I don't totally understand Switzerland, but 
what I understand, what I do understand, is that the day-to-day -day management they elect day-to-day -day managers, mm -hmm. and if there's a, a major decision that, that needs to be made, increase taxes, go to war, um, anything really that affects the nation, mm -hmm. it has to be taken before a, a referendum. No, a referendum. Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they vote on everything. Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. has to go before a referendum, yeah. which what that does, I think, it. It, it makes it superior to ours in the mm -hmm. sense that it forces um, po the population to to attend its government mm -hmm. and to be um, aware mm -hmm. of what the government's mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, people go along doing their thing, and then every four years, we get into mm -hmm. a big hype that mm -hmm. we have to uh, mm -hmm. uh, vote, and a lot of people, they just... They, they, they don't see how the vote affects their future. Mm -hmm. By representative democracy, you mean a system which is based on the democratic principle of unlimited majority rule, but merely delegates that power to the chosen representatives rather than to the direct vote of the citizens. Is that what you mean? No, that would be even worse. Because for a large country, a majority would not be likely to agree on some vicious legislation, whereas a small a chosen body of representatives, unguided and unlimited by any restricting principle, is the pattern of a tyranny. Then your representatives, in the name of the alleged majority, may be guilty of any form of violating individual rights, of establishing complete status tyranny, yet it would be consistent with your principle if the principle is unlimited majority rule. So. Yeah, well, uh, in some cases it, it doesn't affect their view. I mean, there's some people have argued that it's just not worth your while to walk out and vote because it makes it makes so little difference that uh, um, it's just not worth your while to even go to the polling station. So it depends, you know, whether, whether you think. I mean, you know, in aggregate, it seems to make a difference. I mean, you know, a big enough number of people vote a certain way, then then you get an outcome of some sort or other, which. Which is maybe one you can live with, or maybe you can't. Like we, we we're stuck with it present or something, but, uh, um, but we we we're stuck living with it anyway because some sort of majority rule uh, uh, says that uh, you know the present government deserves to be there or something uh, yeah. by, by by some mechanism or other. And uh, and as long as that government's willing to live and and respect <clears throat> the constitution, <clears throat> um, then that that. That government has a, a high level of, of um, um, legitimacy. Yes, yeah, so yeah, that's, the, that's the thinking. Yes. Yeah. And the question is how good the constitution was in the, in the first place, yeah. and uh, and then what what is it like to live with the constitution? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, the, the, the lots lots of things that you can drive a track through a whole, whole lot of things, and, and I mean, then you get modifications to the to constitution. I like the. Uh, the um, the changes that um, the current prime minister's father brought in. Well, I mean, do 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 do, a, do we think they're they're legitimate? What makes them legitimate? Just because he brought them in, or something or other, or that they they make sense on the face of it? Uh, some of the provisions there. And, um, Actually, the, I, I I believe our constitution is horribly flawed. Mm -hmm. um, so there, I mean, uh, so so where 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 are you there? <laughs> if you've got it. A horribly flawed document, and, uh, and you've got a lot of people now in the states. Certainly, those on the democratic side who think the, the original one there was a horribly flawed document, they they they, they want to subvert it every way they can. So well, they have over two hundred years of history mm -hmm. to counter that. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I mean, what's going on in the in, in the democratic side of the, the right. American mm -hmm. um, politics mm -hmm. is a relative, like within what last ten, mm -hmm. less than ten years, mm -hmm. they, they, they've they've gone down this path. Yeah. So yeah. so there's two hundred plus years of mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. versus ten years of of mm -hmm. craziness. Mm -hmm. My name is Democracy. My first memory was that of guarding ancient Athens against tyrants who might attack our freedoms. On my watch, a golden age dawned, lit by the brilliant minds of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But while I watched for tyranny without, I lost sight of tyrants within. Citizens who abused me, manipulated me for evil ends. I turned from loyal to lethal, from vigilant to vicious. I bit friend and foe alike before sinking my teeth into Socrates himself. I fled in horror and shame. For centuries, I hid in a deep, dark cave. I hid to protect myself from my tormentors and to protect man from myself. Then, one day, some men found me they soothed my fear, fed me, and cared for me. They wanted me to come with them to America to become a guardian again. When I confessed my dark secret, they produced an answer. The Constitution. This collar and the words inscribed would keep me trained on my true purpose and keep those who might manipulate me at bay. So I joined them. Together, we launched a new golden age with technological marvels that would have made Socrates glow with pride. The Constitution did shield me, at least as long as men like the founders of America held the leash. But naturally, they passed away with time, and I found myself in the care of new men. These men felt the Constitution was old, outdated, and that I should be given more power. Power to do whatever they thought was good. Roosevelt's New Deal, Johnson's Great Society, Bush's War on Terror, Obama's Obamacare. Demagogues pretended I could do no wrong, but I knew different, and so did one woman. Her name was Ayn Rand. She warned that without the Constitution, I'd become, and I quote her now, a social system in which one's work, one's property, one's mind, and one's life are at the mercy of any gang that may muster the vote of a majority at any moment for any purpose. And then it began to happen all over again. I felt the old madness return. My teeth grew longer. I began to growl and snarl, seeing enemies everywhere. I ran from one crisis to another, goaded by fear. In the frenzy of a global pandemic, my masters loosened my collar and let me trample basic rights to assembly, worship, and property. Even when my collar worked, my masters found ways to work around it letting me snap at social media companies until they bent to political will. My citizens raged, and so I raged. 
They burned cities, beat protesters, and gathered in mobs threatening businesses, and even Supreme Court justices if they didn't bend to their will, the will of the mob. Rather than restraining me, my so-called defenders sought other ways to let me off my leash and expose me to corruption. They tried to eliminate voter ID, expanded mail-in balloting, even gerrymandered my districts to ensure their parties would remain forever in power. They shriek that I'm in danger. I'm on the brink. I'm under fire. All the while hiding my one true protection, the Constitution. I was bred to be a protector, your protector. Now, I need you to protect me. Any, anybody at all can walk across the border now, or at least the southern one. I, I haven't tried to cross the northern one. <laughs> they're a little stickier with yeah, the Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> he usually was that, and, uh, and their response sometimes will be, oh, well, that's because there are lots of nasty people hiding in Canada, and we've got to watch for them. But, but, but the, the southern one appears to be wide open, as long as you can swim the river or do something else and get into the country. Yeah. Well, on the issue of the Switzerland example, yeah. what, like, this whole idea of like, do you think a lot of those things should be allowed to be voted on? Like the like, that's the thing is like, yeah. it's talk well, should we raise taxes or lower taxes? Mm -hmm. Should the government even have the authority to be imposing taxes? Oh, well, yes, quite. Yeah, yeah. So lots like, of, should this be voted lot, on? Lot, 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 yes, yes, right. That's the whole question with constitutions and everything else is what what it what what problems have to be solved. Um, for, for the for the whole and so on, or, uh, collectively in, uh, in that sense. So, we, well, what are the collective, the genuine collective problems? We we probably won't get any agreement on those. You know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, some people would say, well, national defence is one, but then others have said, well, yes, but you don't even need that but, you know, because that can be done solved uh, by an insurance industry or some other sort of thing. Or there are other mechanisms for solving that sort of collective How action. How do you do that with insurance? Um, well, uh, yeah, some, some people have, uh, have argued, uh, Hans-Hermann Hopper, for example, has argued at some length that, that it is possible to contract that out in the same way you contract out other, other services and you can, there might be a way of even doing that, you know, individual states doing it, having one, con one, uh, one, uh, uh, one defense contractor and, and there's a lot of uh, defense contracting goes on anyway. I mean, the most powerful private security companies in the world assist governments with highly trained armed personnel and logistical support. Fear may be a strong motivator in uncertain times. Governments can only stretch so far, meaning some people are more than willing to pay private security companies to go the extra mile in protecting their loved ones. Firms operating in crisis zones around the world require protection as well, which has created a need for more vigilant and military-minded security service providers. Uh, anyway, that, that, that's just another way of saying that you don't have to have a government necessarily do it. And maybe you don't even have to have government hire contractors. It, it could be done at a much more local level or in a different, by a different range. But anyway, that's a, that's a big the big discussion of itself. Um, well, you would almost need a local, like mm -hmm. this country the size of Canada, trying to privatize the military, I think would be difficult, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, maybe, yes. Yeah, like, uh, privatizing military for First County, Yes, I think we well, can do it. Well, the yeah. problem is, is we're, 
how do you manage it? And, and look, look, look at, I mean, absent the military, we've got a myriad of different points of view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yes. um, how, how, I mean, how would, how would you implement it and how would you keep it out of the control of the psychopaths that mm -hmm. want to, uh, um, blow things up? Yes, well that, and, uh, but then you, you've got the other problem of the, the psychopaths that get into the management end of it too, or, well, that's, or the political end. Uh, that's, know, so that's, that's an issue. Uh, yeah, that's an know, issue uh, in North America. Well, it's, yes. it's, a, it's an issue. It's an issue with right. it. Yes. And, and I, I, yes. I, I read once that the biggest problem we have that we've never, like we've figured out how to live relatively comfortable lives. Mm -hmm. we, we, we have control over the elements mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. living space. Yes. We have electricity. Mm -hmm. We've mastered electricity. Mm -hmm. We've mastered air, mm -hmm. like air travel. We've mastered... Right. Uh, um, Communication, mm -hmm. communication yes, right, in, in, right, in a heartbeat. Yes. We've mastered our environment, mm -hmm. but we've never mastered power. Mm -hmm. And power has never ch hasn't changed for millennia. Right. I mean, right, we, right. We, we read yeah. we, yeah. we read the, the the I mean, if you if you want to go back into into biblical times, mm -hmm. we, we read uh, how Israel was good mm -hmm. and prospered. Mm -hmm. And then a, a king came in and mm -hmm. was bad, and Israel <laughs> fell down into the doldrums. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And then we go into Roman times, same thing. Mm -hmm. And we go into medieval times, and it was it was actually psychopaths ruled the, the, <laughs> the, the medieval times. Mm -hmm. And then we started. I mean, it started with the uh, um, <clears throat> Magna Carta mm -hmm. that we started to change our, our, our direction, mm -hmm. but we've never mastered power. Right. Right. No, and uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes we think, well, you know, we've, we've come a long way since absolute rule in France of the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth centuries, and so on. But have we? You know, had what we have in some ways, in, in that it's not all it's not all done by pushing buttons in the palace of Versailles or something, and in, in that sense. And uh, but uh, now we get people who push buttons in Ottawa or somewhere else, and. Trudeau says, "No, I'm not a king." So, no, 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 no. But, but what's the difference? I mean, uh, you know. Um, but, but we really haven't changed. What we've changed is our means of production and our means mm -hmm. of uh, of um, living. Yes. Because we've 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 learned to capitalize on on mm -hmm. on our resources. Yes. And created environments mm -hmm. that that make our, our our life lives easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. every one of us in this room live a higher quality life mm -hmm. than the wealthiest kings in the oh, yes. medieval right, times. Right, right. Like our quality Certainly. of life is just yes. so so yes. if, if our quality of life is, is as good as it is now, what was the peasants' life like under mm -hmm. the you mm -hmm. know in, in medieval times? Hey chopping, become a medieval peasant and you won't have to worry about owning more than one set of clothes. Layering was common for the peasant class. Clothing worn next to the skin was made of linen, and heavier wool garments were worn on top of the undergarments. People understood that washing their clothing helped keep parasites away, and etiquette books advised changing one's underwear every day. For peasants, however, that often wasn't an option. If you were one of the lucky ones who could afford more than one set of clothing, you'd change into fresh garments once a week while washing your other clothing. Peasants who couldn't afford to send their garments to a professional laundress did their laundry themselves, washing their clothes in the river, typically with lye soap. Unfortunately, medieval rivers were often polluted with human waste, garbage, and runoff from animals' waste in the streets. And the question is, I suppose, that 
um, do we owe our quality of life to government or to something else? And uh, you're suggesting it more, more, more. Uh, it's, I, I say what? It's the technology, the discovery, various, various things, and yes. So does government have any genuine role to play there, or is it just a parasitic role of? Of just uh, you know tweaking a few rules or coming up with some rules because somebody says there should be a law about that, so we we, we have law lawmakers who make make laws, but do they really make a, a whole hell of a lot of difference? Uh, well, I I think we bloom the best as a, as as a people as people or as, mm -hmm. as a, a society mm -hmm. when the government manages our environment so that we don't have to worry about someone murdering us, mm -hmm. um, being. Yes. Um, having our yes. property stolen from us, <coughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and we live in a relatively stable environment. Mm -hmm. I think that's the role of government, is mm -hmm. to maintain a stable environment. Mm -hmm. It's not the role of government to borrow our, our resources, our, our right. grandchildren and great-grandchildren's resources, mm -hmm. to, to appease short-sighted, small-minded, um, selfish parasites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. What do you feel would be the? I know your your you, your book says I'm political, so it almost yes. suggests that you would you kind of lean towards a total anarchistic view. Yeah, yes, yeah. so, I mean, uh, but well, basically, what I was doing uh, it was more of an academic task in the sense of uh, attacking one person who said that there there were some notable fallacies that anarchists made, and I look at various ones that he said they made and. Uh, Say well, they, they don't seem to amount to much. So really, the the question is still wide open, as far as I'm concerned, as to whether you you could have an a, a political realm, and uh, and I, I think we could. I mean, we already said that much of the good that we we now enjoy came apolitically. It came through um, technological developments, industrial progress, various things. Which is not to say the government didn't have some role in on the side. Um, I mean, for example, sometimes uh, I saw um, a program the other night talking about the, the, the way the, the railway got, uh, gauge got standardized in Britain uh, to four feet eight and a half, uh, was that um, there was a, a, a royal commission about it or something like that. So the politicians got together and said, well, it might be a nice idea if we standardize it rather than have the, the wide gauge in one, one area and, the, and then so it got standardized. So, uh, but what do we need for that? Yeah, we, we need some sort of group to get together and say that a lot of coordination can be done uh, at the, well, the local level or within a, within an industry or something like that. They decide that it's in our interest because we can make more money doing that. Uh, well, like uh, USB. Hmm? I'm just saying universal yes. serial, whatever, the, what does USB stand for? I know it's universal something, but mm -hmm. you can take, you know, these cameras plugged yes. into any computer. Yes, right. Like that was not... Yes. Um, regulated by the no, 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 no. Well, the idea of standardization came at the advent of the Industrial Revolution. Yes, right. Um, interesting story. Prior to the Civil War, uh, they were the um, American government was looking for suppliers of, of guns and rifles, and at mm -hmm. that point, each gun was ma made manually one at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, Actually, it was a chap that invented the, uh, the uh, cotton gin. Mm -hmm. I forget his name now, but mm -hmm. he, uh, he, he conceptualized the, uh, the standardization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what he did is he, he manufactured, mm -hmm. say, 50 or 100 different guns mm -hmm. in pieces. Mm -hmm. And then he took all those pieces and put, like, uh, 
separate barrels, I would think, yes. so that they didn't they didn't have to sort through the pieces. Yes. But they took all those pieces and put them before members of Congress mm -hmm. and told them to make their own gun. <laughs> and so all they had to do is just take the pieces, and and that's how he demonstrated mm -hmm. the value of standardization. Right, right. And then from there, like the 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 the, the, the rail gauge. Mm -hmm. um, the development of edge rails and steam locomotives pressed another issue, that of railway gauge. Track gauge represents the spacing of the rails on a railway track and is measured between the interfaces of the load-bearing rails. Plateways are relatively forgiving of car axle widths, although gauge is still meaningful. Edge rails require a fairly precise fit of the flanged wheel to the track, and gauge becomes more important, as cars and locomotives built for one gauge will not fit on tracks for another gauge. Track gauge is an important factor. Wider gauges are more stable and generally allow heavier loads, but are more expensive, requiring heavier cars and locomotives and a larger right-of-way. Narrower gauges are less stable, but carry smaller cars and use a smaller right-of-way. In Great Britain, that led to a conflict in the first half of the 19th century between the 7-foot, or broad gauge, of the Great Western Railway and the 4-foot, 8-and-1-half-inch standard gauge used by the Liverpool and Manchester and London and Birmingham railways. The so-called gauge wars were an economic competition over control of lines, but the cost of transferring goods at the point where incompatible lines met, called the break of gauge, finally forced Parliament to act. The Regulating the Gauge of Railways Act of 1846 stipulated that new lines would be made on the standard gauge unless they were directly connected to the current broad gauge network. In many ways, the standard gauge is a reasonable compromise. In fact, research on ancient Roman roads suggests they used a very similar axle width on their wagons and chariots. While the demands of wagons and trains are somewhat different, they're both gauged on the size of human beings. A wagon with an axle width of four foot eight and a half inches comfortably fits two passengers side by side. A railway car built for a four foot eight and a half inch gauge comfortably fits two passengers on either side, separated by a central aisle. While railways in the United States started out using a number of different gauges, in general, railways in the North tended to use the standard gauge, whereas railways in the South developed on a five foot or broader rail that better fit cars that were built to carry cotton bales. At first, this wasn't a problem, as there was not a lot of rail commerce between the North and South, although the difference did play a role in delaying funding for the Transcontinental Railroad, as in 1860, representatives from the South were advocating for a more southerly route. The coming of the Civil War meant that the Southern representatives were no longer a concern, and Congress passed the Pacific Railroad Act in 1862 that not only guaranteed the central route for the Transcontinental Railroad, but stipulated that the entire route would be built on the standard gauge. But the difference in gauges did make it more difficult for the Union to move troops by rail in the South. After the war, during the period of Reconstruction, trade between the North and South grew substantially. The Southern Railroad system was largely repaired and expanded, but the gauge difference started to become more of an obstacle. At first, cars had to be laboriously unloaded and reloaded at the point of break of gauge. Then an ingenious device called the Ramsey Car Apparatus was used to change the trucks under a car without having to reload the cargo. Still, the process was expensive and took time. In 1884 and 1885, two lines that operated in both the North and South, the Illinois Central and the Mobile in Ohio, switched to a standard gauge. This allowed them to be more efficient and put pressure on other Southern railways to compete. In February of 1886, operating officers of the South's railroads met in Atlanta and agreed to change the Southern gauge. Curiously, they did not adopt the standard 4-foot, 8-and-1-half-inch gauge, but the slightly broader 4-foot, 9-inch gauge used by the Pennsylvania Railroad, with which many of the southern lines connected. 
While trains from the two gauges were largely compatible, it was short-sighted of the committee not to move to the 4-foot, 8.5-inch gauge, that as the track gauge of the Transcontinental Railroad was clearly the gauge of the future. Still, the commission went with the 4-foot, 9-inch Pennsylvania gauge. If they didn't standardize the rail gauge, they'd, they'd take the train to a town, mm -hmm. and then the they'd have to switch, switch, out have different have to switch all, all, all their... Right. All their yes. uh, yeah. the, uh, Space exploration is the worst. I should know. I'm the host of an outer space TV show on Fox called Exploration Outer Space, and I got my degree from MIT in aeronautics and astronautics. And what I've learned is that space exploration and technology are a waste of time and money, and everybody knows it. Why are we spending billions of dollars to send things into outer space when we have so many problems down here on the ground? Extreme drought along the West Coast, heat waves that are getting worse around the world, three billion people, nearly half of all humans on the planet, living in poverty. 62 million of those are little girls without access to an education. And Justin Bieber just can't seem to get his life together. So many problems to be focusing on. And at the same time, we have NASA over here spending $18 billion a year on space exploration and research. Now, 
sure, that's only half a percentage of the total U.S. federal budget, which is over $3 trillion. And okay, fine, with that budget, they conduct intense research, which leads to breakthrough discoveries and technologies that spill out across many diverse commercial sectors. But still, many people think space exploration is a waste of money. And I, for one, agree with them. And NASA's not the only one spending money on this worthless venture. We have billionaire entrepreneurs doing it too. Elon Musk, the billionaire genius behind PayPal and Tesla, is now dedicating both his brain and his bank to space exploration. And then Richard Branson, the man behind the Virgin Empire, now has his own space tourism company, Virgin Galactic, which is selling rides into outer space. And then the guy who created Amazon, Jeff Bezos, now has his own rocket company. All of these billionaire entrepreneurs and NASA are wasting their time and their money because space exploration is the worst. Like, like we, we, those, are, those are success, but the people that, that, <clears throat> that developed, especially the space mm-hmm. and the things, the people that developed went to work with a purpose. Mm-hmm. They, they, they went to work, the, the, their, their supervisors mm-hmm. were, were, were driven, mm-hmm. and they expected their people to be driven. Yes. Now yes. we have, mm-hmm. we've created a society of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we have supervisors that are in positions that they don't really understand why they're in the, mm-hmm. those positions, mm-hmm. and they have to make themselves look like they're, mm-hmm. they're, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so they impose a lot of um, <clears throat> silly mm-hmm. um, activities mm-hmm. on their subordinates. Yes. And those silly activities are non-productive mm-hmm. and actually quite destructive. Mm-hmm. And so we. So you think you're thinking of the bureaucracy of government or something else? Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 But the trouble is that that's the whole problem, really. That you say, well, the politicians set up policy. Uh, they come up with the, the broad, the broad outline of what we think is a good thing to do. But then the trouble is, with, uh, people have often said, well, that the devil is always in the details, and of course the, the detail people are the are the ones sitting in that block across from right. where the politicians are, and, and they're the ones who say uh, where where it should all go, or what they think the policy really is, or or no, the politicians haven't got that right because that doesn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, from my background, that doesn't make sense, or something or other. So they they tweak it, move it in the direction they they think it should go. And because uh, in many cases, that because you have uh, top bureaucrats advising politicians, then they they often get in on the discussion at the very top level, the assistant deputy minister level, or something or other. There. There's a term yeah. for that. <laughs> it's called the tail wagging the dog. Right, right, right. And so uh, how, how do you get away from that? Uh, you know, well, I. Um, I really believe that if we were in a, a, a constitutional democracy, mm-hmm. that the uh, provided you had a constitution that worked and made sense and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, but the the, the the elected representatives mm-hmm. are the top dogs, right? And they're the ones that are accountable to the public, mm-hmm. and they're the one. And, 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 and we we really have a, a, mm-hmm. a, an issue of accountability in this country, mm-hmm. and and the the. Elected representatives defer the accountability to unelected uh, mm-hmm. bureaucrats, right. and and so they're they're saying no, I, I can't do that because mm-hmm. that's and, and yet they're the ones where the buck stops, mm-hmm. and we've and, and they've um, relinquished their responsibility and abdicated 
abdicated mm -hmm. the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the bureaucrats, they like their position, they like their power, mm -hmm. and they don't like being accountable for it. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, so, yeah. So, yeah. so they're, they're yeah. more they're, they're than they're in, it, they're in it for the long haul, and they want to make sure that some guy who's only there for three or four years doesn't upset their avocado. So. That's exactly <laughs> it. And but uh, so I don't, how do you ever get away from that? I, I that's, don't know. That's the no, I have no idea because to get something done, you need you need the people who are doing it who are going to do it. So, so they say that you know, you know operationalize the policy, but it's in the operationalization. I mean, a classic example is, is the whole COVID mess. Yeah. How do we ever get into that? You keep saying that you, you've got to get the, the green light from doctors, but where does the, the leadership of a politician come in, whether it's dealing with Dr. Williams or telling someone like Dr. Devella, who quite frankly I think would keep his lockdown for months to come, mm -hmm. at what point do you as the person in charge, the elected official, say, you know what, I understand your, your position, I've heard your concerns, yep. but there's other evidence and there are needs out there that go beyond just dealing with COVID. Sure. Could I could I go out there and be the only politician in the entire country, including the prime minister, all premiers, every single mayor, because I've talked to the vast majority of them, and and say, okay, docs, I'm not a medical professional, but I'm going to disagree with you when I said I'm going to follow their direction on health advice, right from right from day one. And then if I did that, they could slap a section 22 down, and it's just friction. You know, I'm, I'm going to stick with what I've done right from the beginning. I'm going to stick with health and, and science and uh, work with them collaboratively. Uh, but uh, I'm going to be very frank. There's no politician in this country is going to disagree with their chief medical officer. Uh, they just aren't going to do it. They might as well throw a rope around their neck and jump off a bridge. They're done. I'm telling you the facts. It's very simple. I respect all the medical officers and all the docs that have been working their back off. And I will always, always listen to the chief medical officer, his team. Very, very simple. Uh, because they're they're the professionals when it comes to healthcare. I'm not. <laughs> well, the public health officer made me do it. Well, yeah. yeah. But but what's really awful about the whole COVID thing yes. is now that we're past it, mm -hmm. I mean after the Second World War, there was a, a serious reflection mm -hmm. as to why it started, yes. what what happened and yes. what we can do to prevent it yes. in the future. Yes. The COVID, okay, we, we, know, we, we understand why it started, we understand what happened, mm -hmm. but we're not addressing how we can improve for the future. And that's even questionable as to whether we do understand, <laughs> what we understand about it. I mean, yeah, you have someone like Denis Hancourt at the University of Ottawa saying that there was no pandemic. Uh, the, 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 only, the only issue has been uh, because there's been the, the excess deaths that occurred once the vaccination started. And, they got claimed that with no excess deaths, he's done all the, all, all the investigation. He was a, a professor oh, of physics yeah. and so on. Yeah, I'm a scientist. I have spent decades learning science and math, statistics, everything from quantum mechanics all the way to environmental science, biogeochemistry. I'm interdisciplinary. I was a tenured full professor at the University of Ottawa. And I always spoke my mind, and that got me fired. This was before COVID, so I knew what it was like to fight the establishment. And when I heard the COVID propaganda, I knew immediately that it was intense propaganda and that it couldn't possibly be true because they were yelling that we were all going to die and I couldn't see any dead bodies out in the street. 
And I, I did. I went out in the street and I looked around. I couldn't see any dead people, no matter what they said. And as a scientist, what I decided to do was to look at all-cause mortality data. So the, our nations collect very good data about the number of deaths. That's something you cannot be biased about. The person either died or they didn't. You know that they died, you know their age, you know where they died, and you collect that data. Countries collect very good data about deaths and births. So that is unbiased, hard data. We can analyze the number of deaths as a function of time by age group, by sex, and by region, by jurisdiction, by province, state, down to municipalities and so on. And that is the data that I've been using since the very beginning of this so-called pandemic. And uh, we, my research group, we were the first to say back in an article that was published in June of 2020 that when we look at all-cause mortality data, there is no pandemic. There was a peak of deaths at the beginning in certain hotspots that was directly due to how people were treated in hospitals and care homes. It was quantitatively due to that. There is no, uh, so I can tell you, after three years of intense study that we are continuing, I can tell you the following thing. And this is hard scientific conclusions from looking at the data. There was no pandemic. There was no particularly virulent pathogen whatsoever. There's no evidence for it. There is nothing that is spreading that causes death. The mortality doesn't cross borders. The virus has a passport. It refuses to cross borders. You can make a map of Europe. You can see countries where, the, where there's absolutely no excess all-cause mortality right beside hotspots where there's intense all-cause mortality. So those are firm conclusions from our, I have written more than 30 scientific reports about all-cause mortality and COVID-related science, and I can tell you these things with certainty. So when Ava says there's no global warming, I, I also studied global warming. I did the calculations, the radiation transfer. I can tell you Ava is right. As a scientist, I can tell you there's no global warming, there was no pandemic, nothing is spreading, Nitrogen is not a problem. Cow farts are not a problem. I can tell you these things with certainty. I'm not joking. I'm a scientist. And there are many like him who claim that the, the, um, the, the COVID business was a fraud. It was a, a fraud pushed on us by judges like the uh, various other frauds, such as global warming and so on. It was just pushed on us by the, by the globalists because it was in their interest to, uh, to uh, you know, get control and so on. And uh, one way you get control is by telling people there's some deadly disease out there that uh, you have to do all sorts of things for, and stay in your house, and wear masks, and, uh, and we know all the, the whole story we went through. They, they, um, say, they say if you want a population to conform, mm -hmm. introduce a, a pathogen. Yes, right, and, right, and, right. And, and you'll instantly get 70% mm -hmm, conformity. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. When you were comparing COVID to World War II, were you actually <laughs> referring to the virus or the government's reaction? 
What, what, what I was comparing is... Or not the reaction, their, their, <laughs> their actions. I think I should just say not reaction. <laughs> after, the, after the end of the Second World War, we had the Nuremberg Trials. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and Nuremberg Trials is really a reflection on what happened, why it happened, mm -hmm. and what we can do in the future mm -hmm. to prevent it from happening mm -hmm. again. Yes. And, and quite frankly, Nuremberg, if we, if we respected Nuremberg yes. um, through COVID, yes. we wouldn't have had nearly the problems with COVID. Right. Well, the, the, well, what you wouldn't have had is, is the ability to uh, subject people to, to experimentation. That's right. Medical experimentation and one sort or another. Exactly. Uh, the, that it would be entirely up to you instead of, when it's, instead of say, a prime minister who gets on his feet and says, if you don't take a shot, you can't ride the bus. Well, you know. <laughs> that's, that's, we're into the coercion. Aren't yes, we? right, yes. right, yes. And yes. What, what justified that? Nothing, whatever. I mean, uh, and another one of the, uh, the books I had was the, um, or that I brought along was uh, Fisman's Fraud, and Fisman was the, uh, was the head of the Ontario Science Table. Um, and basically, his, uh, they put out a, a study saying that, uh, yes, uh, the, there was some justification, there was good scientific justification for forcing people to take a vaccine, but then there, is, there wasn't any. Uh, and the more we learn about it, um, it was very dangerous to take, yeah. and, uh, and you, you shouldn't be taking it unless, if, unless you want to, but uh, that was a, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Did you want to read a little of your preface? Uh, well, I, I could, yes, I probably, I, I could read a bit of that, and maybe that'll provoke a little more discussion. I'm probably going to head off pretty soon, but let's see. <clears throat> yeah, I'll read a little, just a bit out of the preface, and maybe that's only a page and a bit, so that's not too long. As a classical liberal or libertarian, uh, and so I'm sort of saying that they can go together in some way there, and, but some would say this, there's a very difference between the two. But I don't can you define those two terms? Just for that? Uh, well, yes, I mean, classical liberal typically would say... You said libertarian there, is it? Yeah, yes, you right. consider them the same, classical liberal? I, 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 for the purpose of this discussion, yeah. I was saying that they're, they're close to one another, but others would say, no, a, a libertarian says there's no, no justification of government at all. Um, uh, that we, we want to we want to uh, we defend liberty and we're not much worried about whether it leads to government or one we want order and we don't want chaos but we don't necessarily think that that government is necessary to produce so produce is libertarian order. in your view is synonymous with anarchy anarchism uh, well it could certainly allow for it yes yes okay. yes because Rand Paul's probably not Rand Paul um, Ron, Paul, Ron Paul yes probably one of the most famous yes right he seems like he's just minimalist government. Yes, yeah, I think so. So he'd be more classical liberal, but but that's all right. I mean, uh, so the, classical liberal is more minimal government. Yes, libertarians yes. Pretty much can move. Can can become an capitalist if you like. Uh, uh, what is that term? Arco is that an capitalist Yes, uh, okay, so, yeah. uh, saying that what we want is a free market and free individuals, and uh, we'll create the order we need to, just because we need to in order to, to produce goods and, and do all that we want to do. Anyway, as a classical liberal or libertarian, I'm, I'm allowing that they could, there could be a fair overlap between the two there. I am concerned to advance liberty and minimize coercion. Indeed, in this view, liberty just is the absence of coercion or costs imposed on others. In order better to understand the notion of coercion, I discuss Robert Nozick's classic essay on the subject, as well as more recent contributions. <clears throat> I then address the, uh, the question of whether the law is coercive and respond to Edmondson and others who think that it isn't. 
Assuming that the law is in fact coercive, there is still a question, as with all coercive acts, of whether that coercion is justified. Edmondson thinks that this places a special burden on the state, uh, uh, on, on the state of justifying its existence, whereas it simply places the same burden on the state as anyone else. What I reject is the long-standing doctrine of reasons of state, namely that the state is not subject to the same moral rules as its subjects. With respect to the relation of morality to law, Edmondson thought that another of the fallacies of which the philosophical analysts, uh, anarchists were guilty was that of assuming that there was a sphere of morality where the law had no business. On the contrary, our concern is with spheres of law which appear to have little to do with morality, mm -hmm. which is to say uh, laws against wrongs of the malum prohibitum variety as opposed to wrongs which are malum in se. So the, that, those Latin terms mean malum prohibitum means simply they're being prohibited by somebody or other, you know, a government or uh, as legislation, for example. Whereas there are, we, we think there are some things that are really wrong in themselves, such as force, fraud, theft, the standard moral prohibitions. So I don't know whether... So uh, what would like an example to... be like, what would be an example? Like a moral law, obviously, don't, don't kill people. Right, yes. And a, a government law that's not necessarily a moral law would be... Can you give an well, example? A good example is um, moral law is don't steal. Yeah, no, I'm thinking what's an example of a government law that's not a moral law? Well, a moral law is don't steal. Yes. A government's law, or a government law, is steal through taxation. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, that, that's going on to the totally. Well, I guess that's the thing. As soon as it's not a moral law, it's going to be an immoral law, isn't it? Yeah. It might be, yes, or, or a law that has no moral basis or something, and, and I suspect the bulk of legislation might, might fit, fit into that, that it's, it's not, not to do with not stealing, not fraud, defrauding people or, or killing them and so on, and, and that, how much of the government's work is connected to that. Uh, um, and because often they, they will get rounded and say, oh, well, you know, we, we have to have uh, laws for the environment or something like that because... Um, uh, you know, uh, if, if you pollute or do something else or don't drive an electric car, then you're killing people. So, <laughs> what, what to, you know, when, when you continue to drive gasoline engines, then uh, that, that kills a lot of people. And, uh, but the question is, does it? <laughs> well, yeah, that's the question. Is, <laughs> yes, does right, it? And, right, and, and, right, and who, who, right. Does it, who does it kill versus yes, the, the yeah. electric car? Yeah. And, and yeah. Look, look at the, the minerals that have to be extracted right. by oh, yes. virtual yes. slave yes. slave uh, yes. labor. Yes. So yes. so who's actually being killed and mm -hmm. who's being harassed? Do yourself a favor. Don't think about the fact that production of an EV emits 70% more greenhouse gases than that of a gas-powered car. And it'll take nearly a decade of driving to offset those emissions. Don't think. And don't think about all the DIY lithium miners freelancing for the Taliban, who you're essentially financing by buying this car. Don't think. And definitely don't think about the staggeringly unregulated process of lithium-ion battery production, the South African miners getting neurological diseases from huffing manganese dust, the assembly facilities built suspiciously close to forced labor camps in China. Can't think. Gotta drive. Good. Just yes. because, just because we, we have a North American-centric viewpoint, mm -hmm. but we have figured out how to exploit right. a lot of different people in, mm -hmm. in, in 
less uh, wealthy nations. Mm -hmm. And and how how far do we want to go down that ex exploitative right. route? And and the problem is that government thinks it's in a position to pick winners, to tell us <laughs> what what direction the technology needs to go. You know, we need. I am a bit of a Trudeau's said what that we all need to be driving electric cars by when I don't know. 2035, wasn't it? Yeah, or was it 2030? We know we need to cut emissions. We know we need to reduce pollution. But one of the best ways of doing that is to get more clean cars on the road. As Laurie and David were telling me, their EV works great and is much cheaper to power than their gas car. Too often, though, electric vehicles aren't in reach. So we're making smart, targeted investments to change that. First of all, we're making EVs easier to buy. We're extending the program of up to $5,000 to help people buy electric vehicles. We're bringing in new mandatory sales targets of 20% by 2026, 60% by 2030, on the way to 100% by 2035. How does he know? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, what gives him the authority to say that this is what we should do? Yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, uh, other than other than they've arbitrarily picked the number, right? And and and, um, and said through, that through this technology is is better than what we're now doing, and, and it's the government's job to uh, to um, push us in that direction or something. The the, the reality is is the technology the technology we have for replaceable um, uh, energy. Mm -hmm is so infantile mm -hmm. that it's like like our carbon tax is virtually not really nothing more than a cruelty tax. Oh right, no, it's just nonsense. And, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean yeah, just they, like just like his COVID rule that you don't don't get a shot, you can't ride a plane or a bus or yeah. take the train or something. I mean, no no sense whatever. But yeah, but, no. but he has the the power what you went back to initially the, the, yeah. he has the power to get get up get up on a platform and say that well, what you should do or you shouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. The reality is, and just, just to uh, make my position mm -hmm. fairly clear here, the reality is is that there is more than enough energy that hits the earth on, on a daily basis mm -hmm. to, to completely support us. With, with, if, if we could figure out how to harness that mm -hmm. energy, mm -hmm. uh, there's more than enough to support us mm -hmm. indefinitely mm -hmm. on, on, on sustainable yeah. energy. Yes. The, the issue is is that we really don't have the technology. Right, and, and do you want the whole city covered with uh, solar collectors? <laughs> That's the idea, the other problem. Well, they well, talk in order to do that with the current technology, you would have to have pretty well, well the whole of Ontario covered with, the, with, with the, solar collectors. The whole city is covered with roofs. Yes. Yeah. Why, 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 and I know that I know that there have been developments, and mm -hmm. this is years ago, mm -hmm. that um, incorporated shingles mm -hmm. into solar clouds. Yes, yes. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's more a function of, of um, <clears throat> now I don't know what kind of resources are required to, to manufacture this possible. And wind and solar only work when the wind blows and the sun shines, but we need energy all the time. The solution, we're told, is to use batteries. Again, physics and chemistry make this very hard to do. Consider the world's biggest battery factory, the one Tesla built in Nevada. It would take 500 years for that factory to make enough batteries to store just one day's worth of America's electricity needs. This helps explain why wind and solar currently still supply less than 3% of the world's energy, after 20 years and billions of dollars in subsidies. Putting aside the economics, if your motive is to protect the environment, you might want to rethink wind, solar, and batteries because, like all machines, 
They're built from non-renewable materials. Consider some sobering numbers. Building a single 100-megawatt wind farm can power 75,000 homes, requires some 30,000 tons of iron ore and 50,000 tons of concrete, as well as 900 tons of non-recyclable plastics for the huge blades. To get the same power from solar, the amount of cement, steel, and glass needed is 150% greater. Then there's the other minerals needed, including elements known as rare earth metals. With current plans, the world will need an incredible 200 to 2,000 percent increase in mining for elements such as cobalt, lithium, and dysprosium, to name just a few. Where is all this stuff going to come from? Massive new mining operations, almost none of it in America, some imported from places hostile to America, and some places we all want to protect. Australia's Institute for Sustainable Futures cautions that a global gold rush for energy materials will take miners into remote wilderness areas that have maintained high biodiversity because they haven't yet been disturbed. And who's doing the mining? Well, let's just say that they're not all going to be union workers with union protections. Amnesty International paints a disturbing picture. The marketing of state-of-the-art technologies are a stark contrast to the children carrying bags of rocks. And then the mining itself requires massive amounts of conventional energy, as do the energy-intensive industrial processes needed to refine the materials and then build the wind, solar, battery hardware. Then there's the waste. Wind turbines, solar panels, and batteries have a relatively short life, about 20 years. Conventional energy machines like gas turbines last twice as long. With current plans, the International Renewable Energy Agency calculates that by 2050, the disposal of worn-out solar panels will constitute over double the tonnage of all of today's global plastic waste. Worn-out wind turbines and batteries will add millions of tons more waste. It'll be a whole new environmental challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's more a function of, of encouraging um, bright minds to mm -hmm. come up with solutions yeah. to the yeah. problems. So I, I wanted to point out about liberty. Yes. Um, this, I, it took me a lot to wrap my head around mm -hmm. it, but the more I think, I think about it, the more it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Is And I think this is the American way of viewing liberty. Yes, a lot is of people they, think that, yes. Is, yeah, yeah. is they view liberty not as important to them, mm -hmm. but important to their neighbor. Mm -hmm. And really what they do is they fight to preserve their neighbor's liberty. Mm -hmm. And well, in, in a reciprocal environment, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense. Well, you could start with your own liberty, and then, then chances are you'll uh, you'll look after somebody else's too. You know, I mean, you're not you're not obliged to do that, but but, but uh, you you might well say to yourself, well, I don't I don't want him to suffer because I could be the next guy or something. So you'll you'll you'll, you'll do whatever you, you need to do because you you could be the next one, and yeah. and charity and other things may, may may come about that you would want to. But well, want to preserve their, their well-being as well. You know? yeah. mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's a difference between compulsion and compassion yes, right. when we're talking right. charity. Yes. And, yeah. and well, our, it would our, not be charity if it's compulsed. Right. Well, our, our system is, is, is being compulsive about charity. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's taking the opportunity for compassion mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. Because if, if, we're, if we're taxed to the point where we I mean, the the cost of housing, the cost of food, the mm -hmm. cost of interest, the cost mm -hmm. like like the cost associated with living, and and, and the one cost that we have mm -hmm. 
that is this, this is a real bugaboo of mine. Mm -hmm. a, a huge cost to living in this country. Mm -hmm. They don't even include it in our cost of living index. Mm -hmm. That's our taxes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a huge cost, right. and, and, and it's not included. And, and mm -hmm. that, that if we if we could change that one mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. it'll make a huge, it'll yes. make a difference in our. And uh, then, of course, you've got, you've got all the um, uh, the global stuff going on, where, where they want to increase our costs, you know, because they want to make it unlivable. They want they want us living living at the the, the egalitarians. Uh, want want us to be sure that we're we're not living at a much the sort of high standard you talked about earlier. Um, because that, that's unfair to people who are not living at that standard in some sense or other. So, mm -hmm. so therefore, what we do will we'll, we'll bring us all down to the right, right. low level of being right. peons. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, what, what, what it's doing is it's, it's creating a, a, a slavery. We're volunteering yes. to yes. become slaves. Yes. And so what's the solution to that? Uh, and, and, it's government which is pushing us there. So. But, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our rather heady conversation about the dangers of governments with too much power, which includes democratic governments. By incorporating our fundamental principles of freedom, which, which means liberty, responsibility, both individually and corporately, fairness, being in a system where we can reasonably expect fair and equal treatment regardless of our background or ideology and respect, respect of each other as beings created in the image of God. These four foundational principles of the People's Party of Canada will lead to a government that will function as originally intended, protect its inhabitants from external and immoral forces, either military or otherwise, and provide a stable and predictable environment in which its citizens can carry out their lives in liberty and freedom. With your support and effort, this will become a reality. Thank you for joining us, joining us this week. Please share this episode of the Purple Microphone with friends and family. Remember, silence is consent. If you want to see positive change, you need to take positive action. If you have any questions or would like to help us, visit perthwellingtonppc.ca backslash contact for our email address and phone number. One of our representatives would be happy to meet with you to discuss your concerns. To become a subscriber to the Purple Microphone and Wayne Baker's uncensored email newsletter, go to perthwellingtonppc.ca backslash subscribe. Please consider making a contribution to help cover the costs of producing and promoting this podcast. Help save Perth Wellington and the rest of our nation from government overreach, woke ideology, and irrational policies that are incompatible with freedom, fairness, respect, and personal responsibility. To donate, go to perthwellingtonppc.ca backslash donate. You can find all these links in the description below this video along with links to any videos, articles, and books referenced in this episode. Freedom is where there's neither tyranny nor anarchy When the government works to keep people free The PPC won't lock us down in a big nanny state They'll leave us in peace to make this country great
This production was approved by the Perth-Wellington People's Party of Canada Electoral District Association.